I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal at Navigator's Calgary office. And I'm Lauren Rollheiser, a partner with Gowling WLG in Calgary. Welcome to the final episode of the Energy Exchange, a podcast where Lauren and I explore the energy transition in Canada and what it means for our industries, our climate change goals, and for our future. On our final episode, we've invited Kevin Byrne, Vice President, Commodity Insights, GHG Emissions Coordination, and Chief Analyst, Canadian Oil Markets at S&P Global. He helped provide some perspective on the energy industry and what we can expect to see in the future. Kevin is responsible for a team of greenhouse gas experts tasked with advancing GHG emissions quantification and ensuring consistency in estimation across S&P's Global Commodity Insights businesses. In this role, Kevin provides strategic guidance on energy-related GHG emissions, strategy, and research. Kevin is an established thought leader on the Canadian oil market and serves as the chief analyst for the Canadian oil market. Well, welcome, Kevin. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Kevin, you've been doing a whole bunch of media lately. And uh, in fact, I think you had an op-ed in the last few weeks uh, here in Calgary. Just, I would love to hear from your vantage point, you know, with with obviously the horrible events that are unfolding um, in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and, and the implications on supply. You know, maybe just off the top here, give us a lay of the land if you see what's changed in the last couple of months and, and what are the implications for this new dialogue around energy security uh, uh, and how it's going to impact Canadian oil sands. Sure, I can definitely try. I, I, don't, I don't think we're in months measuring this yet. We're still in weeks. I, you know, I think you referenced the point, which is the one why we're having this conversation is this really, um, you know, changing, really significant change in global behavior with Russia invading uh, Ukraine. And a realization from most countries that energy security really does matter, uh, and you know, and I think this is really coming to the head because Russia, and I, I hate these terms, but Russia, for all definitions, is an energy superpower. You know, it is you know top tier global oil producer. It's the single largest source of natural gas used in Europe, um, and so there's this concern about the stability of supply back into the equation, in particular, security supply coming from Russia and the ability to continue to purchase. Uh, oil and gas from Russia and a desire not to purchase, frankly, uh, oil and gas from, from Russia. Yeah. And Kevin, I think that's, those are the two paths I kind of want to build out a little bit because the things I've been hearing a lot of are, you know, some, I'll, I'll use the phrase bemoaning of a uh, underinvestment in oil, natural gas, and energy infrastructure. Uh, but I think that's just as prominent is a bemoaning of uh, inadequate progress being made on renewables. And so I think there's a lot of second guessing, I suppose, about what we have or haven't been doing in respect of energy policy, uh, locally and nationally and internationally. And I'm a little curious about what you're hearing or, or what your views are in respect of kind of the, the either or and and associated with this. And what I mean, what I mean, when I say that is, you know, I think the realization is short term, it's got to be oil and gas, fossil fuels. But even saying that is an odd thing to say in that it is a uh, capital intensive business that requires a lot of planning and a lot of uh, work to change the uh, supply dynamics. Um, And if that's the short term and uh, the transition, the green transition is the long term, that is even more complex because how do you sort of invest now uh, in a reasonable and responsible way down both these paths while trying to solve this problem at the same time. It's sort of trying to trying to change the tire while the car is moving down the road a little bit. And I'm curious if you're hearing, um, you know, sort of a, a how to balance these two paths if, with people you're discussing this with. 
Well, yeah, I think there's, yeah, I'll back up a little bit. You know, you, you're very rightly point out there is a disconnect and, and I, I typically call it a cognitive dishonest that it's about trend, transition. There is a disconnect about the fact that our world remains very much hydrocarbon powered. You know, like if, if I look out your window and you look out my window, you see a car sitting out there that's an internal combustion engine. That's 99% of the cars out there. There's a billion of them out there. My home runs on natural gas, all those things that didn't change. That hasn't changed over the last three years. There certainly has been a material acceleration in net zero ambition and ambition for energy transition, but all the infrastructure is still very much fossil powered. And that's, you know, that's what the shock is hitting us is hitting us in the fossil fuel sector, seeing these escalating energy prices and people, you've got one camp going, aha, I told you, you know, these things are important. We should have been paying attention to them. And the other camp going, aha, I know I told you we should be getting off them and we'll be more energy secure with renewables. They're both right to some degree, but there's a temporal gap between being right here, right in the here and now, we need those things to, you know, basically avoid or ensure that we have adequacy, uh, you know, an affordable price. Energy, high energy prices, even at these levels, people may think they're great for the upstream sector. And that's the perception. They're going to have really great bottom lines. They're not great in the, in the real grand scheme of things because they cause inflation. Everything we use and everything we consume, even you know, from the apple in the grocery store to even the water that comes through my pipe uses energy. And so high energy prices can increase the, the cost of everything. We live in a very privileged part of the world where we have a little bit more disposable income than a lot of other people. Now, that's not universally true about everybody, but you think about a developing nation, you just have less to do more with. And so it can really crimp economic growth and all those other things that you need to, to, to get these economies going, uh, coming out of COVID as well. The other side of this is, and we're seeing this now, is a doubling down on transition, particularly from Europe, as they see a need to get away from their dependency on Russia. Is so energy transition isn't going away. Parts of the world are going to accelerate. Other parts are not necessarily going to change. You know, certainly the U.S. is going to be looking to their upstream sector to produce more oil, and I think we're seeing that as well. But in Europe, we're seeing double, doubling down on transition to 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 try to bring forward those renewables that would reduce their dependence on on Russia. But they still need hydrocarbons today. Yeah, I have a couple of things there I'd like to unpack, Kevin, that you stuck on that really jumped out at me. And you know, when you when you talk about the notion of this this increase in oil prices. I think there'd be a surprise in the rest of Canada outside of where we, we live in Alberta and those associated with the industry that there isn't a great celebration. People aren't here like Scrooge McDuck counting their, their dollar bills. In fact, there's great concern about the price of oil and concern that it's that it's getting too high. And, you know, it, it kind of goes to this idea that we've talked a little bit about on our podcast about how well the oil and gas sector in Canada is telling their story, both nationally here and, and internationally abroad. The other thing I think the Canadians would find surprising is just how much dialogue there is around transition and transformation. And those are slightly maybe different things, but we can get into that as well. But, you know, you go down to one of the largest oil shows and in, 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 in conferences in the world at Sierra Week a number of weeks ago in, in Houston, and it, the theme and the agenda could have been at an environmental conference or at the Globe conference that we'll see coming up in Vancouver in a couple of weeks. And I'm not sure Canadians appreciate what the focus of this industry is on right now. And it is about managing that supply. So we manage the cost, but also on that transition. I, I think you're right. I think one thing that we've saw on the last 36 months is really an acceleration in interest in broader society. A lot of people pointed to government for energy transition kind of policies, but society, you know, First of all, governments are a manifestation of the people, generally speaking, not, you know, there's a few countries that we talked about earlier, but it's not, may not always be the case. 
But in democracies, that's certainly the case. And the governments are acting on societal pressures and interests. And that's true in the oil and gas sector. You know, what we see is, and this is why you see so much interest around words like disclosure and greenhouse gas intensity production, is because what's happening is the upstream sector and the oil and gas value chain as a whole is being asked to compete on, on carbon, right? So we now want to make choices in terms of, you know, it's almost like printing the calorie count on the side of a Coke bottle. People want to make those choices in the fuels that they're going to use today. And if, they, if that's the case, if they're going to be asked to compete on carbon, the upstream sector and that, you know, the oil and gas companies generally are some of the most competitive companies on the planet. They're doubling down and figuring out how we're going to improve our, our competitiveness on emissions if that's the imperative. And so I think you, you rightly cite Sierra Week, you know, that is, you know, fair, paramount for these companies is how do we position ourselves to make realistic, pragmatic statements of ambition, but also then actually deliver and execute on them and doing what society wants us to do, because we know we're going to be rated and ranked by how we perform against them. And so you'll see that permeate every sort of discussion when you talk about oil and gas companies, including the oil sands. And oil sands have been at this for probably longer than most because there's been a heightened amount of scrutiny in the oil sands emissions profile. They have a long track record of reductions now. You know, are, we can get into, are they significant enough to compete or how do they compare today against others? Um, but that's the imperative that's being handed to the oil and gas sector. And I, I would expect to see some dramatic changes and improvements in their mission profile across the entire sector. Before we jump in, Lauren, to the next question, just for some of our listeners who don't live energy and oil and gas the way maybe some of us do, when we we're talking about that upstream, that's that production piece, right, Kevin? And then midstream is when you ship it, that's how we get it. And then you're downstream when we talk about that, that's when you're refining it into products that we use every day in our lives, like, like gasoline in our cars. But that also goes to that disconnect that you were talking about in your op-ed recently. Um, in the vernacular and how we speak to each other in Canada. How does that impact our discussions around transition? Well, Canada is unique in the sense it's, it's a major energy exporter, but it's also a major consumer in the planet, right? And so you get different responses from different regions uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of what we're going through in higher energy prices. In the East, it's a, it's a larger importer. Um, there isn't the similar upside revenue benefit going on in that, that part of the world from these prices that would be happening in Western Canada. And that obviously changes your you know, view of the, what these prices look like. In Western Canada, we do feel the prices, you and I personally, as we see things go up. Uh, in Eastern Canada, they just go up and there isn't necessarily you know, a government being buoyed with profits, um, which is what we've seen Alberta do. It's enabled them to do things, frankly, that other provinces are not going to be able to do, such as they've cut their, their, the, uh, the tax at the pump to try to soften the impact of these higher prices. And they're also talking about giving rebates to, to, to homes to offset some of the heating costs associated with it. And they're able to do this because they're, they're benefiting from the high energy prices. So they're trying to blunt the impact to the consumers. That's not something that's necessarily in the same um, realm of possible in, in regions that are, more, uh, are not energy exporters, but energy consumers uh, on the balance. You also hit on another thing. In Canada, we're a major energy producer, but most of what we produce doesn't, isn't consumed here. Almost all of it is actually ex exported uh, and it's consumed by our neighbors to the south. And we've become, uh, and I think this is probably worth conversation south of the border as well as on our side of the border, uh, we've become the United States' largest source of supply. We've been that way for a long time, but we're now 60% of their foreign imports. That's, that's huge. And the United States became Canada's largest source of supply. And we've had this for about 10 years, as I'd say, a very good sense of energy abundance. And I think, you know, rightfully so, because we've been flush with um, all forms of energy. 
Um, but we haven't really been thinking hard and long about energy security until this this most recent crisis really threw it in our face. Yeah, and maybe just to pick up on energy security a bit, um, I think some words that I think are somewhat helpful to frame uh, thoughts around all of this, you know, ESG, environmental social governance has been a, a real touchstone for quite some time now. And I think it's, that's kind of a fuzzy or has been somewhat of a fuzzy concept. It kind of depends who you ask. And I think it's really coming into focus to a greater extent where the social and governance part, you know, environmental, I think is pretty clear. It's, it's carbon and emissions that I don't think has changed, but what does social and governance mean? I think the stability piece of it for social stability and uh, inflation impacts on people and governance slash security, I think are, are really coming to the fore. So I think we're getting a lot more benefit. And, and I've, <laughs> I feel like I say this every time we get together, Jason, and I get together and chat is what we want to do is talk in a realistic way about energy. And I think we do that, although I do try to catch myself from being overly optimistic. And some of this optimism that I think I might have is that we're going to maybe start moving past some of the finger pointing and some of the demonization and some of the coulda, shoulda, woulda. And people are going to start getting a little more serious about you know, with having ESG come into focus in a more practical way, based on sort of this shock to, you know, event in Europe, uh, inflationary issues that we'd had before then, which are being exacerbated now. And I think it's bringing home to people is like this, this finger pointing, this dithering, this, you know, a lot of talk and not as not enough investment, it's time to put that away. And it's time to get serious about doing real things. Um, I guess, what I'm interested in hearing you sort of provide your perspective on is um, how, how you see those conversations taking place with the people that you interact with. I mean, uh, people that are in industry and trying to make it run today, but also advancing industry and working on the transition that we um, we think is coming uh, you know, concurrent with our, our current, with our present needs. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a Bunch of really good points. Um, I, I, I think I'd start by saying <clears throat> we we we, we touched into this really early on about high energy prices and they're not good for everybody. They're, they're generally not good for everybody, right? There's a, there's a sweet spot for energy prices and then there's too low and then there's too high, right? Um, and I think one thing that we didn't really talk about is you know the negative impacts of high energy prices is it, it's destabilizing. Um, it makes it very hard for governments to maintain policy stability and when they have to try to respond to offset the costs of energy or worry about the affordability uh, and people's quality of life. And I, I, you know, I, this is where I got into the definition when I, when I wrote about it last week about energy security. It's kind of this junk word. We all use it, but we don't really think about what it means to us uh, as individuals. Um, and certainly a lot of people are thinking a lot about it when they go to the pump now and they see $2.00. That isn't really the full story of energy security. It's about you know adequacy, so security, which we've certainly had re-injected in this conversation in your ESG metrics, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at that to have a more rounded out uh, conversation about that. Uh, it's about uh, affordability, you know. So if we can't afford it, that's that's a problem. And it's and if it chews into our quality of life, it's a problem. And it's also about environmental sustainability. So in my sense. My, my view is energy security is very much aligned with the environmental social governance metrics. Um, it's about preserving our quality of life, both from an environmental point of view, which is, you know, we, we can't live without the environment, 
but also in the sense of balancing our needs for affordability, affordability and accessibility of energy. So we feel secure in our ability to, to spend money on other things, frankly, and prioritize other projects that are re required. So I think those are kind of some key points. You, you covered quite a lot of ground in your, your statement there. Uh, and I do, but to your original question, um, the conversations we're having, I'm not, you know, I, I think there is, I, I you know, I, was a, I won't name the name, but there's a really good politician I got to spend some time with uh, a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, there's 20% that are build everything everywhere, no matter what, and don't care about anything. There's 20% that build nothing any, anywhere, anytime, any, any place. And he's like, and then there's the remaining 60% and that's who you need to target. And they're the reasonable uh, reasonable middle or the pragmatic middle. And if, and, you, and if you're honest and you're transparent, Canadians will make the right choice. And I, I think that's generally true. And what we tend to see is, on, is these two pillars arguing with each other rather than where the, most of the Canadians are. And I think most Canadians recognize the importance of energy security. Certainly it's been amplified and they're ready to have that conversation not just the conversation in relation to what's going on in, in, in Europe and the really tragic events in Ukraine, but also the conversation about how do we ensure the adequacy of upstream supply or investment to ensure that upstream supply from hydrocarbons is there to meet demand in an affordable and an adequate framework so we can have the quality of life we, we want while we go through the transition. The opposite is if we don't make those choices and we don't allow those investments to happen, we end up in a lot more volatile and a lot higher price track that slows everything down. Well, well, a piece about that pragmatic middle that I think is changing, and I think now I'm for different reasons, which is costing has always been a relevant factor. And I wouldn't say it's no longer relevant, but I just think people's thoughts on it have evolved somewhat. So through the um, uh, an extended period of low interest rates and low inflationary issues, and I think costs have been sensitive, uh, you know, people are always sensitive to costs, but I just don't think it's been the priority issue. And I think the pandemic, uh, with all the pandemic spending that took place, I, you know, my read on it is uh, it was viewed to be the right thing to do because it's necessary because this pandemic is hopefully a once, once in a lifetime event. And it's like, well, listen, I don't love it, but that's the way it goes. So we got to do what needs to be done. And that's now been followed up with significant inflationary pressures and the issues in Europe. And I, now I think people, uh, I think the pragmatic middle is reacting in a somewhat similar way, which is, well, again, I don't want inflationary issues, but I recognize there's costs that need to be paid associated with having secure, stable, reliable energy. And if that's going to mean that I'm going to wind up paying more, which I don't like, but I think the pragmatic middle is kind of softening on the view of this is just a thing that has to be done. I don't need to like it. Uh, I didn't like the pandemic. I don't like conflict in Europe. There's a lot of things I don't like, but some stuff has to be done. And the transition is one of those. And I, I think that that is kind of opening up some room, Jason, this is sort of more for your side of the ledger for sure than mine, uh, opens up some room in the political space to say, listen, folks, um, this is just the way it is. It, it's going to cost, it's going to take time and money, and but we've got to get at it. And that leads us to, uh, yes, doing what we're doing presently, but kind of reinvesting and that reinvesting largely to transition in a green way. And now it's trying to get the sticks and carrots as Jason and I have spoken about a few times and getting those right to make sure that the, the um, words turn into actual deeds. I mean, again, I don't know, Jason, from a, from a policy and political perspective, you think anything from my armchair 
<laughs> communications and public relations uh, make sense. But I do think the pra- pragmatic middle is softening to, uh, or maybe just reluctantly accepting that there's a change in the cost structure coming. I'd like to pick up on that and Kevin, maybe get your thoughts uh, on what the brand is like for Canadian energy, whether it be nationally first here, maybe, and, and then internationally with your involvement uh, that you've had. Uh, you know, you, we've talked about having this discussion, right, with the with the practical middle. Um, I've, I've heard, I think, the same same politicians say something's very, very similar a number of years ago to me. So how do we have that conversation? Because I think a lot of Canadians, like I said earlier, don't believe the amount of work or understanding kind of work, effort, investment that's going in into transition by the oil and gas sector. So what is the state of the brand to you from your chair? I'm trying to think of a way to formulate a good answer for you. I, I, I just want to say one quick comment and then I'll try to answer your question. I think one thing that, you know, we've had this acceleration in, in, and commitment and doubling down of, you know, ambition for transition in the last couple of years. And now we have this incredible price shock um, that's going on. And it's, it's not just the shock, it's the volatility that comes with it. And we're seeing the prices swing around, which makes it you know, destabilizing. But you've also seen unwavering commitment remain in place for those ambitions from the government of Canada, Europe doubling down. So this is what we're doing, is what they're telling the world. Um, there is this, it's going to be a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. And I think that's the part we need to have a conversation about how do we, how do we manage this transition? So it is, and I, I don't necessarily like these words either orderly or disorderly, but so it, it isn't one that is dis, you know, disruptive and volatile, which ultimately would probably weaken its own speed anyways. Um, but to your question, what's the Canadian brand energy brand look like? Um, Canadian energy is viewed in ideal mostly with the United States uh, as stable, predictable. Um, it's there when you need it. Um, but I do think it isn't always appreciated. It isn't always fully acknowledged how pervasive Canadian uh, energy exports are in the United States. Like that 60% I threw out earlier, not well known, uh, probably even in the energy community in the United States. Um, and the things happening in Canada are also not well known. known. I'd say this has been Canada's own detriment for it could do more to engage globally. Um, and, you know, people could argue, well, the United States isn't global. If you go to DC, you go to the circuit in DC, it's global. And so I think there is something to be said about Canadians to start engaging like they are a major energy player internationally, you know, and I, my background's oil. It's, you know, we can debate whether it's fifth or fourth largest producer in the world. That's a significant role, you know, 5% of global supply. It's a pillar. Uh, and Canadians need to start acting like that internationally um, and engaging and traveling and, and doing that part and building those relationships. I think that that's a good. That's well, and where do we where do we want our supply to come from? Right. Do we want it to come from a country like Canada that has very high social and governance standards? Or what's surprising to me is in the discussion in the U.S. right now, when we look when they're looking at increased supply, you know, there are countries like Venezuela that come tip a tongue, not Canada. In fact, Canada wasn't in the first two or three that I heard the. The Secretary of State referred well, to. They don't, that was shocking. They don't worry, you know, but they don't worry about Canada. Fair you know, they don't, they don't have to worry about Canada delivering supply to them. You know, right. so if they're looking at the world, where can I get an incremental barrel? I, d- I don't necessarily agree um, from a from a social and governance perspective. We want to go back to ESG right. metrics, but they're looking for places that could incrementally ramp up in very short order, order, right? And so that brings to mind Venezuela. There's a lot of latent capacity that's fallen off. 
I don't think it's a short order one in my mind, given the lack <laughs> of human capital that, you know, that has, or the human capital is left. Iran's another one. You know, there's, there's places around the world that are not, you know, the sunny spots you want to go spend holidays right now um, that do produce oil. And we've forgotten about that in this conversation. And so in some, that you're, you're getting to my point, Canada wasn't on the list because it is a steady, stable source of supply. They trust it will be there. Maybe it should have been just, just out of, you know, that head, to, to, you know, not of the cap kind of thing. Um, but in, the, in some sense, the United States knows we're there. But we, you know, should we be part of that conversation? Yeah. If we were more engaged, would we? Probably. Um, but yeah, one thing I think that's caught us up on kind of almost every major export um, project associated with hydrocarbons, whether it's an LNG terminal or a major pipeline, has been this debate inside of Canada about <clears throat> how will this impair our national ambition? Uh, and, and that's you know, cast over the light that, you know, oil and gas sector emissions have been growing steadily and have become our largest source of emissions. And that's not, and what's not fully taken into account is how do those, those, those exports then impact global emissions? And I'm not talking about repatriating off of those emission credits back to Canada. I'm just talking philosophically, we, we you know, we should take that into account. A lot of the LNG export go to this gas to, gas to coal competition, we're displacing gas. I don't really necessarily buy into that argument, but I do buy into gas on gas competition. And there is this, you, there, and although I don't buy it, there is something to be said about not building another coal, coal, coal plant in China as well. It's a positive to society. You know, when I look at the LNG value chain coming out of Canada for gas on gas competition, you do have a, the potential of a molecule that is lower carbon intensity than other molecules being delivered to Asia. And so now you have to think about, well, if I build this terminal, am I doing something to net benefit society in reducing emissions, both first from coal and from the gas on gas, which I think is a more valid competition basis today. Um, and we have to square that. We never did. And that makes it hard. And it, you know, in a country like Canada, we're relatively small with a very clean power sector. And that leaves you, you've, you don't have the same amount of levers to pull, whereas the United States has been able to achieve most of the reductions have come from coal to gas switching in the United States. So it's, it's a different beast uh, and it makes it very hard. And it, it really has been Canada's challenge. If you look at our ambition, we've, our, our absolute emissions have not really moved materially for, for a number of years because of that challenge of growing value in our, our energy export commodities, but also then accompanying it with emissions. Um, and that's been pushing back or offsetting gains elsewhere or reductions elsewhere. We kind of started to nibble up against the, um, you know, pressure oil and gas companies are under, but I think on the whole pressure to be part of the change, but not really sure how to do that and be um, responsible to shareholders. But I think you might say that there's more to it than simply that pressure, which is the internal pressures that, you know, how do we go about this? Uh, but maybe, you know, what do you think, or what are your views of the current uh, pressures that and competing objectives that the oil and, and gas companies have to uh, address nowadays. Yeah, um, it really comes down to you have to put this in the context of in the preceding half decade or more, the North American upstream sector, the producers, particularly shale, really drilled away any upside in oil prices. You know, part of the business was I'm going to go explore and find something. And, and if I find something, I'm going to, the oil prices will eventually be cyclical and go up and I'll make lots of money or I'll sell it to someone else and they'll produce it. Uh, and that, that was kind of the business model. But what happened was shale was so prolific 
it not only was able to meet growing demand in terms of grow, as it was growing production, it even began to exceed it. Coupled with things like oil sands together, they started to overwhelm the oil market. And that got us into this period of really malaise prices for the last half decade, basically since 2015. And the financial community lost interest. You know, your value proposition vanished. You know, you, there's no going to be no upside for your business. And so it shifted the mentality in the upstream sector, these producers of oil and gas, to one of exploration and production and, and production growth being a metric of value to returning or cash flow becoming the metric of value. And you're seeing all the CEOs talk about value now, uh, ROIs and those sorts of languages. And that, so that the paramount pressure is to return cash. You can, there's different ways they can return cash. They can increase dividends. That's always a slippery slope. You don't want to increase it too much because you get married to it. Uh, you can pay down debt. You know, so you improve your margins that way, or you can buy back your share and increase your valuation that way. And they're doing all of that. Uh, they're absolutely doing that, but they're doing that in the lens of financial communities return cash, but the financial community is also asking to prioritize decarbonization or improvement of competitiveness and identify identification or transparency on transition risk. And what's transition risk? Transition risk is really to what degree have you uh, thought about the way demand, your future demand could be impacted from the, the energy transition or to the degree at which you have thought about um, the potential impact on, on your bottom line of increasing carbon costs in some way or another. Those are, it's oversimplification, but that generally it's, so you've got return cash, decarbonization, and within, and then within the decarbonization one, there's not a lot really, if you're a core producer of oil and gas, you can do. The first thing you can do is you can fix your assets and they're all doing that, looking at efficiencies, improve their carbon intensity of output. Um, they can start shifting your asset portfolio. So within a play, you can high grade where you drill in terms of shale. Like I'm not going to drill over there, poor rock quality. Um, by the way, emission intensity, the geologists get to be right. It's just a game of rock quality because it's a metric of productivity over emissions. And then the last thing is you can dilute it, and, uh, which is you buy or move into something entirely new or different. And so you become more of a holistic energy company. We see all those levers being pulled to varying degrees based on your geography. European, European majors are much more into the going into renewables where North America is much more improve the operation of my facilities and compete on carbon kind of thing. But there is a challenge for these upstream companies. I call it the Icarus moment. You know, like how far do you pivot to one of these strategies or the other? How far do you pivot to non-traditional fossil fuels before why would I invest in you? I can go and invest in a renewable. Or how far do you pivot or do you do not pivot, right? So do you fly too close to the ocean? You fly too close to the sun. So trying to find a sweet spot where the investors respond to their behavior in terms of decarbonization, but also still returning significant cash flow. And then we talked about this a little bit earlier. You have to maintain your production volumes too, especially if you're in something like shale, it has steep declines, which is quite different in the oil sense. It doesn't have that. So priorities are return cash, decarbonize, and maintain your production right now. Yeah, when I when I think about a like a waterfall graph of a company's production profile. Uh, and this is the lawyer oversimplifying the part that the business and science folks do, which is um, the bottom of the waterfall graph that stacks up your production, which declines down over time, can have green, long run green facilities layered in over time. So in, instead of reserve replacement, which has always been a thing that needs to be done, as you've kind of described, I mean, the companies all run on the production treadmill. And it's uh, find and replace the reserves and hopefully beyond what, you, if you're not producing, if you're not finding reserves beyond what you produced, you've got a real problem. But that replacement of reserve model can be with long run green energy, if it can be economically 
sustainable. And so when the investors are deciding which projects are going to fund and they meet their rate of return requirements or not, um, maybe the way this measuring of metrics has been going nowadays makes it easier to say, let's start layering in. And I think as I heard you talk, that's a little more acceptable or, or adopted model in Europe and, and less so in North America, but I suppose we might be transitioning that way, which is I'm doing well here. I'm still on the production treadmill. It's just the production shift is going to have to happen internally. Again, my optimism might be showing through, but the timing associated with all the things going on in the world nowadays and the sticks and carrots that are out there and continue to be offered by government, I think might help advance that a little more quickly in the next 10 years as has in comparison to the last 10 years. I think you're right. And stronger energy prices that we're seeing, although they're not entirely positive, will generate the cash flow for companies to diversify into alternative forms of energy. And I think that's always kind of been the thought for, for upstream oil and gas companies. You were, you're going to have smaller producers that are going to be core and focus on core. And what I mean by core is continue to do what they've been doing and being successful at it. But the bigger ones, you will see pivoting their portfolio for diversification uh, to, re- to dilute their intensity of overall operations by bringing in, re- you know, non-emitting sources into their calculus of, you know, emission intensity just is a ratio, right? So it's your units of output over your emissions. And so if you increase units outputs with that lower, lower intensity, whether they come from generation of power from wind or from additional lower intensity fossil fuel production, doesn't matter, the corporate emission intensity falls. And so that's the game that they can play to, to align themselves with a, you know, a net zero scenario or with a trans- transition scenario. Um, they're just all choosing different pace at which they're doing that. I do think when you look at North America, they're focusing on improvement of assets right now. Uh, Europeans are focusing more on that, you know, dilution or investment in renewables, but they're all going to have to do follow a similar similar trajectory over time. And if you think about what price has done from 2014 to today, so take the last eight years and wonder, well, why haven't they been doing it for the last eight years? Well, when you're in a fight for for survival, you can't prioritize it in that way. You're you're trying to get your ship righted, and again, high prices though they can cause problems, they do solve other problems and create some more flexibility, which um, we might be entering that period where uh, the correct combination of events is uh, coming into focus that will allow the kind of development for a transition in a smoother way. But time will tell. Yeah, I would just not to belabor this point a little bit longer, but if I look back the last, say, 2015, which is the beginning of the, the, the price collapse, Right. So we had the oil prices go from almost $90 uh, on a WCS, so a heavy, heavy barrel in Western Canada. So let's say over $80 a barrel. They fell to $20 a barrel within a, a, you know, about a year. They immediately hung around, hung around $40 a barrel um, for, for a year or so. Then we had the differential blowout in late 18, where we saw, you know, tested single digits of WCS. Then they shot up to 55. Then we went back down to single digits of COVID. And now we're back, you know, we're testing heights we haven't seen since 2008. So it's one thing to have low prices. It's another thing to have high prices. But instability is really hard to manage because it impairs decision-making because you want to save your money for tomorrow. Uh, and then tomorrow it falls out from you. So you blow your money trying to pay off the, the fallout of tomorrow. So you just can't, it, it impairs decisions across the board, not just, not just in um, the production sector. Maybe just to sort of wrap things up, Kevin, I'll ask you to put on your prognostication hat, the worst hat of all to ask someone to put on, especially given how volatile events are in the world right now. But, you know, let's look to 2030, maybe to 2035. And and what do you sort of see kind of as your predictions? uh, What horizon are you looking at for price fluctuation? Where production is going to 
going to ramp up and, and maybe not ramp up and, and, and what impact that might have on, on, on Canadian government policy? Well, there's a two, two, two aspects, right? There's the very short-term, immediate-term uh, issues of what's going on right now. And then there's the longer-term aspect of which, which would weave in more of what happens on transition and to the degree that advances. I think in the short term, you know, certainly, you know, we've saw Western nations really choose to wage economic warfare over physical con or direct confrontation. There's many reasons for that. Um, at first, they sought to avoid uh, impacting the energy exports. Now that's open season, and they're going after energy exports in Russia. Even if they hadn't gone after the energy exports coming out of Russia, it, it's it's almost impossible to manage that their energy exports. Um, imagine the energy exports wouldn't have been negatively impacted when you consider the the loss of human capital uh, and straight capital coming from the divestments of major oil and com gas companies out of Russia. Uh, so you're going to need to backfill that in the short term. You know, you're going to see a lot of volatility in the market simply because of uncertainty about the stability of Russian supply and where it could go and degree it would, would, where it could be impacted. Uh, could it fall dramatically? Uh, could it be blocked dramatically? Will, how will trade flows be impacted? Longer term, I think you have to have a conversation about the degree and pace of energy transition, the rollout of electric vehicles and oil demand, those sorts of things. I would say uh, uh, where I work um, now, S&P Global, we tend to look at the world through scenarios. Uh, and, and very credible scenarios. And we have three kind of base core scenarios. Um, there's inflections, which is really a, a, our base case. It's a world where the world does become more multipolar, um, where domestic interests uh, can trump international cooperation. And governments do move on climate, uh, but it's only one of many priorities that they have to juggle. Uh, there's green rules, which is a full scenario, but it's, it's a dramatic reduction in global emissions, about a 50% cut by 2050. And it's about a 1.9 degrees Celsius scenario. What we, what that, the basis of that scenario is, is a world envisions of uh, catastrophic environmental events one after another, and that really emboldens the strong arm of government to really get in and do really, uh, really embolden a, a unprecedented level of global cooperation and public support to really move aggressively on climate. Um, and that does perceive a world where we retire infrastructure well, well before its actual physical end of life. And then there's Discord. I won't get into it a lot, um, but it is a world I probably really hope we don't get into. Incredible volatility due, due to basically, as it sounds, Discord, a lot of people just don't get along globally and they pull in different directions in a very dramatic sense. So I think it comes down to what world you find yourselves in. I think there's a credible basis for all those worlds. In our inflection case, we have oil prices lower than they are today. Uh, but uh, oil demand continues into the mid, mid early uh, mid 2030s, I should say, before slowly plateauing and bending over. Um, we still have significant penetration of electric vehicles, and then green rules is you throw everything you can at it. But I would say in these two kind of uh, bookends, one thing that isn't fully appreciated um, is the the role of hydrocarbons. And even in our most kind of dramatic demand decline scenario, uh, which is green rules. The world continues to need new oil and gas to replace declining assets globally because the pace of global demand doesn't fall at a pace that exceeds base declines. Now, what's a base decline? A base decline is if I drill a well, it'll immediately begin to decline. And so my I, I, it's a wasting asset, so I have to replenish it. And so if I don't, if demand exceeds that base decline, a decline at which oil falls globally naturally, then I need to go and do something else. I need to find something else. And that supports an oil price high enough to stimulate activity. And, and for Canadian supply, one of the things that's misconceived about it is it's often called high cost. It is not high cost. 
It's large out of front, out of pocket expenditures over multiple years that is expensive to get it online, but it's all built. And so to continue to operate, it is very competitive globally um, and it can hang in there with most sources of supply. And our, like, our view on transition, it's about competition. There are going to be winners and losers in the, in the upstream extraction business. That includes in Canada, uh, but it doesn't mean the sector's uh, a loser totally. Um, and that's true of every play on the planet. There's room, there's room in competitive forces in every play. There's a lot more dynamism in the upstream than I think a lot of people give, give it understanding or credit for. Sorry, long, long answer. Uh, no, Kevin, I, uh, I assume that um, you know, these scenarios have certain probabilities attached to each of them. And I'm curious about uh, unforeseen events and technological, including technological change. Uh, I imagine that that's kind of a catch-all qualifier thrown into your scenarios, but I'd be interested to know. So I'm glad you that's a great segue. Um, so we have three core scenarios, and then we have a number of net zero scenarios, but we also have a couple cases. Uh, and so they're not necessarily full-blown. Our three core scenarios, there isn't a probability assigned with them. They're both, they're meant to be compelling. Uh, and so you can get debates to really stress test business strategies. Uh, and so they need to be compelling. But to your original question, we have an accelerated CCS case. So where we try to see how much CCS is feasible to deploy and see what, what that could do to the world. And there is an uh, what we call a multi-tech scenario, which is really a accelerated technology scenario from, uh, you know, what, what could you really see happening from a pure technology standpoint to change the world? And what would it be required to get to a certain outcome as well? And so we do do those analysis analyses and that, that allows our clients to contrast their version of the world, what they think is compelling or could happen and try to find, you know, these are meant to be strategic, find a path where you can be resilient amongst the vast majority. And that's really, I think, you know, if we go back and talk about, we kind of hinted on it, disclosure and TCFD and all that stuff and transition risk, that's really what the financial community is asking of all companies, particularly oil and gas, how can you be resilient in all these different scenarios? Not necessarily, I, I need you to believe you're going to be in one of these scenarios, but how are you resilient in all of them? No, that's very helpful. And it, it helps, at least in my mind, kind of clarify what investors and boards are thinking about in respect of building out their their scenarios you know what are the risks that we can monitor how do we foresee them <clears throat> how do we quantify them and then try to make our business decisions based on the world as we uh, see and foresee it in the future that's very helpful thanks kevin i really appreciate your time today you're welcome well i think we've got tons to work with here folks this is uh it's gonna be a fun one to see how it's come together good luck to our editors on this one thanks kevin so much for joining us really appreciate the time and, and the thought you put into this no worries. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to do it, you guys. So that's a wrap on the Energy Exchange, a joint podcast brought to you by our teams at Navigator and Gowling. We want to extend a huge thank you to Kevin for joining us today. Some very thought-provoking commentary that I think provides us with some important considerations for the future of our energy-producing provinces, our country, and international energy markets. This podcast, in fact, this series, wouldn't have been possible without our incredible behind-the-scenes team, including Anne Derby and Ian Mondreau from Gowling, and Catherine Moore, Kayla Duty, and Zoe Kirsted from Navigator. A very special thank you to my co-host, Lauren, for providing some incredible legal insights and for being a great podcast partner. Finally, I want to extend another thank you to all of our previous guests in this series, and to you for joining us as we attempt to distill the energy industry in a mere four episodes. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have in producing it.